Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we pick a new or newish book, and we interview the author or authors of that book. And this week I'm very pleased to say we have John Earl Haynes on the show and Harvey Clare, uh, and we'll be talking about their book, which they co-wrote with Alexander Vasilyev, uh, Spies, the Rise and Fall of the KGB in America. I thought this book was absolutely fascinating. Uh, I'm a Russian historian myself, though, of the pre-modern period. I did, however, follow uh, what had come out about the history of the Communist Party in uh, the United States and uh, the the Soviets' efforts, successful efforts, I think, to um, manage that party and use it to infiltrate various parts of what I would really call the American establishment, because I don't think they got into Kansas where I'm from. Maybe they did. But uh, people uh, who were sort of born very well and did the right things and read the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, they were the kind of people who were recruited. And uh, it, it turns out that they they uh, that they were pretty successful in recruiting them, more successful than we knew. And this is an interesting book in the sense that it has uh, what, what um, mathematicians call a finding. That is, we really know something new as a result of this book. And we know it because new sources appeared, and um, uh, John and Harvey were fortunate enough to get their hands on the notebooks of uh, Alexander Vasilyev. Uh, they're a rather famous document in Russian history now, or Soviet history, and they'll talk a little bit about that document, which was very important for the um, real revelations. Um, I don't know if revelations is the right word, because the accusations had been around for a long time, but they, they sort of clear things up for us, and they do it in a, in a wonderful way. And it's a really very interesting read for anybody who's, who's followed this kind of thing over the years as I have. So, John and Harvey, thanks very much for being on the show. Delighted to be here. Yes, very good to be here. All right. So um, maybe we could take one after another. John, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm a uh, historian uh, by by training. Uh, I have just recently retired, uh, but from 1987 until uh, fall of last year, I was the modern political historian in the manuscript division of the Library of Congress. Mm-hmm. And uh, Harvey? Uh, I'm a professor of political science and history at Emory University in Atlanta, um, and uh, not quite retired yet, but but getting (laughs) getting close, Um, and uh, spent my career writing about American communism. I see. So both of you then knew a lot about uh, the history of American communism prior to the fall of the Soviet Union. You had studied these questions, right? Yes. uh, um, You know, I had uh, done my dissertation back in the in the Stone Age on something called the theory of American exceptionalism, which was the issue of in Marxist theory about whether America fit Marxist conceptions of of the development of societies. And and throughout the nineteen seventies, nineteen eighties and nineteen nineties I had written about American communism, uh the American Communist Party itself. And uh really in, in nineteen ninety Two, uh, my career took a uh, real jag uh, because I, I went to Russia. Um, it was now Russia, no longer the Soviet Union. On a on a research trip, uh, I was I was going to go in a different direction, and and I was fortunate enough to be there uh, shortly after the failed coup against uh, Mikhail Gorbachev and. Boris Yeltsin had uh, seized the Communist Party's property, and among that property were, were Communist Party archives, and he opened them up, uh, and I was one of the first scholars, probably the first American scholar, and one of the first Westerners to, to get access to that material. And so uh, my research began to turn a little bit more in the direction of espionage, somewhat to my surprise. Mm-hmm. And John, you'd study this stuff as well? Well, yes. Uh Originally, I got into the area sort of by a side door. I, I was in graduate school in Minnesota and had decided to do a dissertation on the history uh, of the Democratic Farm Labor Party, which is the name of the Democratic Party 
in Minnesota. It's the product of a merger in 1944 of the Democratic Party, which was then the third largest party in the state, and the Farmer Labor Party, which was the second largest party. At that time, Republicans were the largest uh, uh, party in Minnesota. But the early history of the DFL was a, a bit murky, and I decided uh, a, a, uh, a study of it uh, would, be, uh, would be useful. And when I got into the research, rather to my surprise, I found there was a role of the Communist Party involved in it, in the farmer labor side, going back to the middle of the 1930s. And so my, uh, that piqued my interest in the role of uh, communists in mainstream politics, uh, and particularly in the development of, of uh, liberalism in the 1930s and 1940s. Um, and I found that a great many historians tended to avoid dealing with uh, the history of the uh, Communist Party in terms of its involvement in mainstream politics. So I found it an area where there were great many opportunities for research and writing, and uh, got involved in that. Um, but like Hardy, my interest in this area until the 1990s really was in uh, domestic politics, uh, really in the role of communists and anti-communists in uh, in domestic American politics, uh, espionage really was not an interest or a focus of my research. But after Harvey found some material in one of uh, Moscow's archives, which indicated the party was more involved with espionage than either of us had thought, well, we felt it would be kind of silly not to pursue that, and that got us into the area, and that really has been the focus of our uh, research. Uh, since the early 1990s. Mm-hmm. I think what's uh, inc- incredibly unusual about this is uh, usually historians are, um, uh, what is the right word? They're very focused on one thing and they stay on that one thing no matter what happens. And it seems to me that you fellas uh, sort of switched courses once uh, you saw that there was an opportunity. So that speaks very well of both of you. Well, I mean, part part of that, uh, quite frankly, was was um, exhaustion. Um, <laughs> we, both of us have been studying American communism for for a long time, and and quite frankly, um, if you you read enough uh, American Communist Party documents and and FBI files about American communism, it's just mind numbing. Um, particularly the the. American Communist Party rhetoric. Uh, it, it just, it, it's just incredibly cliche-ridden and, and boring. And, and uh, so I, I, I'd been doing that for over 20 years, and boy, was I tired of it. And, mm-hmm. and the other, the other factor was um, there, there was a pretty nasty. Uh, set of disputes going on within the study of American communism between people uh, for shorthand could be called traditionalists on the one side and and revisionists on the other. Uh, John and I were two of the very small band of traditionalists. um, That is, people who who argued that the American Communist Party had had really been a... um, an instrument of Moscow, and um, on the other side were the revisionists, many of whom had come out of the new left um, uh, of the 1970s, who argued that the American Communist Party was really a genuinely American democratic uh, organization that had valiantly fought for civil rights and labor organizing and anti-fascism and had really been uh, destroyed and demonized by McCarthyism and and, uh, and American Red Scare. And, and those debates had been going on for a long time, and, and we'd been lobbing grenades and, and artillery uh, across no man's land. And, and quite frankly, I think both John and I were sort of tired of the arguments and looking for something else, and, and this espionage material turned up. Uh, and fortuitously, it supported our argument. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I, I guess another thing that's very interesting about this is that uh, when this new information came to light, you had, as you say, a kind of set of questions 
that um, were being debated at the time, and you could focus on those questions, which, which is very, I think, unusual for historians. That is, usually we go into, at least I, in my case, I go into archives, I don't know what I'm going to find, and I don't exactly know what I'm looking for. But, but here it seems that there were, I mean, there are names that people who listen to this show will know, um, Robert Oppenheimer and Alger Hiss and the Rosenbergs and, you know, Kim Philby and the rest. I mean, we know about these people yeah. precisely because they, they were debated, were in the press, and, you know, campaigns were mounted to prove their innocence or campaigns were mounted to help their children or campaigns were mounted to v- really vilify them. Um, and, and even when I was an undergraduate in the 80s, this was still alive. I mean, people right. still talked about these things. And, and, uh, and uh, it's all kind of gone now. And maybe, maybe thanks to your research, it's kind of gone. But even this week, as I, I, I told you in the pre-interview, I was listening to local radio and one of um, the Rosenberg's son lives in Western Massachusetts, where I live. And he was on the radio, and he said some very interesting things. He did not say that his parents were innocent. <laughs> he did not exactly say they were guilty. Uh, well, I mean, maybe he did say they were guilty, but he—he—he he, uh, he, it, it's still alive in the American mind, this notion that right. somehow there was this witch hunt. So um, let's actually turn to the, the information itself. What, what kind of information um, uh, did you have uh, new access to and... and um, and uh, who, who produced it, and what did it say? Um, well, now I, you're, referring, I, you're referring to the book, to the material for the spies book. Yeah, the spies book. That's yeah, exactly yeah. right. And I'm thinking about particularly the uh, Vasiliev, which is a very interesting. The, the whole you could write a book about the story of that guy, right? <laughs> um, the Vasiliev, but also the, the material that you found in the in the what's now the, I think it's all in the presidential archive now. All the stuff's closed again. Um, so the, the material, the KGB material, right. John or Harvey? John, you want to go ahead? All right. Um, I think uh, uh, in, in terms of the Vasiliev material, it's important to remember that the uh, that the uh, KGB archives have really never been open, even in uh, the most open period in the 1990s. Uh, the um, KGB archives are actually, uh, at that point, of course, the KGB no longer existed. The, the archives of uh, the Soviet intelligence agency, now the, the SVR, um, I mean, the Russian intelligence agency, the SVR. Uh, and, uh, but the SVR had, uh, in that period, allowed some material, a limited amount, to be made public indirectly. Uh, in the early 90s, when things were in a bit of chaos in the new Russia, and uh, the intelligence agencies were vastly underfunded and they were having trouble uh, maintaining pension uh, payments to their uh, ex-officers, the SVR decided to sign a, a fairly lucrative uh, book contract uh, with uh, Crown Publishers, a Western American uh, publisher, uh, to publish a series of books about Soviet intelligence, where they would pair a serving or retired KGB officer with a Western uh, author. Uh, only the uh, uh, only the Russian uh, uh, partner, uh, the retired or active uh, intelligence officer, would have access to the archive. He would have uh, access to the material and then would prepare uh, summaries of relevant documents and make them available to the Western uh, co-author who would then write the book. Uh, And a series of books were, were planned and a number of them were published. Uh, this project came to an end in the middle 90s when the SDR regained its standing in the new Russian government and was no longer as um, desperate for funds as it has been, and the project was simply canceled. But um, uh, it had produced some books, and one of them was to be a book on uh, on. Soviet intelligence operations in the United States in the 1930s and 40s. In this case, uh, the, uh, the, the uh, Russian co-author was Alexander Vasiliev. Uh, he had been a young KGB officer in the late uh, 1980s, and had actually uh, resigned from the agency in uh, 1990 as things were falling apart, and he became a a journalist in the New Russia, uh, but then was asked to uh, come back in 1992 on a sort of contract basis to assist with the project of the book on 
uh, Soviet operations in the U.S. in the 30s and 40s. So he came back and worked part-time at the SVR headquarters and had access to the archival material uh, in this period. Uh, he couldn't make actual copies of the documents, but he was able to uh, make whatever notes he wanted, and he took them home with him. He actually made them in notebooks. Uh, he altogether um, accumulated around 1,115 pages of material. Hmm. Uh, Alexander was very meticulous in how he did it. Uh, he would either write a summary or simply copy, uh, extract, uh, uh, sometimes several pages of quoted material. He always noted exactly what document it was from, uh, what file the material uh, was found in, uh, and he also would make uh, annotations about the identification of, of certain things. Now, uh, these notebooks he kept with him. Uh, they were not uh, kept by the SDR. He did, uh, in, in 1996, though, as this project was coming to a close, he became very concerned uh, that things were changing uh, in Russia uh, with the SDR regaining its footing in you know, the Russian government. Um, it, he was concerned that elements in the SDR that were hostile to the project from the beginning uh, were now going to look for scapegoats because they thought the project was leading to the disclosure of secrets. Uh, and that he, as a former officer, uh, not even still a serving officer, um, was scapegoat material, particularly for the still strong uh, communist uh, element in the SVR. And he was concerned that, in, remember, there was a presidential election in Russia that year, and it looked like um, uh, the, the communist candidate might defeat Yeltsin. So Vasilyev decided it was time to leave Moscow. So he got a journalistic assignment in London and left uh, and has never gone back, and he's now a, a British subject. At that time, he did not take the notebooks with him. He left those with, with friends. What he took with him were the sanitized summaries, uh, and those were then given to, uh, uh, to Alan Weinstein uh, and uh, uh, for the production of the book uh, The Haunted Wood by uh, Weinstein and Vasilia. And it was an excellent uh, book with a great deal of interesting new material. It was based on uh, Alexander's uh, sanitized summaries. I might add the, the summaries were uh, which uh, Alexander had prepared uh, under the standards of this Crown Book uh, project. Uh, he was supposed to, uh, in the summaries, not to identify um, cover names by, with their real names. And there were some things he wasn't supposed to talk about whatsoever. Uh, and the sanitized summaries had also uh, had to go through a, an SVR committee of senior officers to make sure that um, uh, uh, really sensitive material was not being disclosed. But nonetheless, uh, the sanitized summaries had all kinds of uh, new material in them, and, and that produced um, uh, an excellent book, uh, The Haunted Wood. But it is not the, the summaries are not the same things as Alexander's original notebooks, which are far more detailed not sanitized whatsoever. They were uh, written originally for just his own uh, benefit. Uh, and it was from them that he prepared the, uh, the summaries. Well, after a few years, uh, he had his uh, friends in Moscow send him his notebooks in London. Uh, and um, he actually used a page or two from one of the notebooks as a piece of evidence in a libel trial he was involved with involving uh, uh, involving uh, the, the Haunted Wood book. And a friend of mine uh, got a photocopy of one of, the, one of those pages he used in the trial and sent it to me. Uh, it was handwritten in Russian. I had some colleagues of mine who, who can read handwritten Russian that translated it for me. It was an extremely interesting page, particularly because it had material that had not appeared in the Haunted Wood, hmm. uh, some very uh, sensitive material, uh, which I found intriguing. I wondered why why uh, Ellen Weinstein, an excellent historian, hadn't used this material. Well, of course, eventually I would find out because Alan hadn't seen it. Uh, Alan had only uh, uh, had the, uh, the sanitized summaries to work with, not Alexander's original notebooks. 
Well, I then put the, um, the translation of the page along with the page itself on the web on my own uh, website because it was of interest to those of us uh, uh, involved in the area of espionage history. And after a few months after that, I got an email from Alexander Vasiliev. I had no contact with him. And um, he said he had been you know, surfing the web and uh, up top his own, his own uh, page. Uh, and uh, his uh, email was, despite to see it, was okay with him. Uh, and then he said uh, uh, the translation was uh, uh, excellent, but he thought there were a few words that uh, my translator had gotten wrong because he couldn't read his handwriting correctly, mm-hmm. and he had uh, corrections for it. Well, of course, I appreciated that and uh, responded, and then asked him, are there more pages like this? And I explained why I was interested. And then he replied and explained uh, what I just told you about, that he had these uh, these notebooks, um, well, over a 1,000 pages of material like this, and he said there was all kinds of information in them, uh, that was uh, not in the summaries he had, uh, that had been used in the Hollywood. Wood. And by the way, did I know any American historians who might be interested in, uh, in looking at them for a possible another, another book? Well, of course I did. So Harvey and I were on a plane a week later to London to look at Alexander's notebooks. Hmm. Yeah, that is a fascinating story. And then they become, I wouldn't say it's the, well, the basis, I don't know, it becomes an important element of, of the book Spies. Yeah, yeah I, I would say the I would say the basis. <laughs> okay. Well, there's other uh, yeah, material we, that was released as well. The Verona material, for example. Yeah. Well, the the, the great thing about Alexander's uh, material is that that it it corroborated and expanded on what we knew from Venona. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, Venona was was this uh, national security agency project to um, decode uh, Soviet communications during mostly during World War II. Um, between um, Moscow and and its stations around the world, including um, the United States, and, and the the uh, the Venona material, we John and I had written a book about it, um, based on, on on it because the NSA and FBI had released that material in, in the 1990s. Um, the Venona material was often fragmentary. Um, these were cables sent between, say, New York, Washington, San Francisco, and Moscow. Um, and, and they were often short. Um, many of the cables were only partially decrypted. Um, they, they were fascinating and very revealing, but they left a lot of holes. And, and the wonderful thing about the Vasiliev material is that it, it filled in many of those those holes. Um, for example, uh, Venona messages that that had been uh, printed by or released by the NSA uh, might have, um, let's say, uh, you know, there'd be a sentence that would be decrypted, and then there would be in brackets uh, a thing saying "unrecovered." Um, you know, 37 lines unrecovered. They, they could not break into that material. Well, Alexander, in some cases, had copied mm. the, the full message. Um, many of a number of the the um, cover names that had appeared in Venona that uh, American counterintelligence had never been able to identify were identified mm-hmm. in Alexander's um, notebooks. And um, in, in one fascinating case, the the NSA had identified a cover name, and um, in Alexander's notebooks, it was a different person. And when we went back and and looked at that individual and what was in Venona, uh, it was it was clear that the notebooks were correct, that the NSA had misidentified um, this particular source. So uh, it, it was just an incredible resource because it, you know, if you've worked in archives, you know that, that you have to be cautious about documents you find in archives. Um, uh, the, the person that that produces the document may be misinformed or mistaken or make an error or be self-serving um, and have a, a certain agenda. So you, you you can't take a document always at face value. And and the wonderful thing about the Vasiliev notebooks is that it enabled us to, to literally cross-reference things with the Venona material, with the material that I had found in, in Comintern archives back in the early 90s, 
with uh, Vasily Matrokin's material. He was a KGB archivist that had that had um, uh, copied a lot of material and turned it over to the British. So, so the the material cross-checked, and that gave us a great deal of confidence in its veracity. Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's get one thing out of the way. Uh, the the um the Soviets are are famous for fabricating documents. Is there any question about the authenticity of the Vasiliev notebooks? Well, no, no, I, I don't think, think so. Yeah, I don't think there is. I might uh, add in terms of uh, of what we did to authenticate them. Um, in order to get all of this material uh, properly translated, uh, was an expensive proposition. So we needed to uh, seek a a foundation a grant to uh, get it done. And we knew one of the requirements of getting that done uh, would be a, uh, uh, an effort to, to fully authenticate the material. So at a very early stage, uh, what we did was bring Alexander and his notebooks uh, to Washington, where we had a, a two-day meeting where a group of, of historians um, and uh and uh, retired intelligence officers examined Alexander's notebooks, discussed with him the origins of them, how he did things, and uh, essentially went over his story and over his notebooks. Mm-hmm. And there was unanimous agreement of the entire group when it was over that this stuff was authentic. Mm-hmm. Now, in addition, as, uh, as uh, Harvey explained, uh, in our own work, we, of course compared Alexander's material with the Venona decryptions, with the testimony of that had occurred in various trials, with FBI files, uh, with Matrokin's material in England, and it all fit together. I mean, uh, everything cross-checks. Everything fits. So we are, mm-hmm. we are totally confident of its authenticity. Mm-hmm. And I might add, this material has now been public since 2009. Uh, there are plenty of uh, hostile historians out there who don't like what we have had to say, and they have been utterly, completely unable to find any holes in the material. Mm-hmm. I see. So let me ask what I think is the most important question about your research, um, and let me give a little preface about it. Uh, I um, am of the generation of historians. Uh, we, we were working in the archives when the archives so-called opened in 1991, um, and I saw the publications that came out uh, after that and continue to come out today. And one of the things that really surprised me is actually how little we learned that we didn't already know. Um, and I think I can explain this pretty well. And this is about the internal goings-on in the Soviet Union. We knew a heck of a lot about the Soviet Union. It was the most studied place in world history by a foreign power. We invested millions and zillions of dollars to do it. And, in fact, we had done a very good job of it. Uh, we knew how the place ran in, in, in quite significant detail. And what we found in the archives, at least I think what we found in the archives, did mostly confirmed what we already knew. What did you learn in these documents that we did not already know? Well, I, I think uh, there are several uh, things uh, that, we, that we learned, and Harvey will have some examples, I think, as well. I think first is in terms of dealing with some things which, in a sense, we already knew. Uh, there were a number of things which we already knew, but were nonetheless still contested, mm-hmm. uh, such as um, the extent of Julius Rosenberg's uh, espionage. You know, until Venona came out, there were still plenty of people claiming he was totally innocent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of the other uh, famous spy cases uh, as well, they were, they were still contested. Between Venona and Alexander's notebooks, essentially those uh, controversies are over. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's clear that uh, that even though they were contested, one side was right, one side was wrong. Now, there are some things which, in a sense, uh, I think are totally new. One is, and I think this is really a, uh, an example of a very important unknown spy, uh, William Weisband. Uh He was a, a translator for what is now the National, uh, the National Security Agency, our, our cryptographic uh, agency. Uh, he went to work for them in 1946 uh, and continued there until uh, the FBI uncovered him as a Soviet agent. 
Now, because of the nature of his work and the nature of the evidence that, uh, that was used, he actually was never tried. Uh, he was in prison briefly because he refused to uh, testify uh, to a grand jury, and so he was jailed under contempt of court. Uh, but but uh, this was a case that never got any kind of publicity. Uh, most people have never heard of him. Mm-hmm. Turns out uh, that he made available to the Soviets uh, in uh, around 1947, uh, uh, he informed them that uh, was in the predecessor to NSA, was reading virtually all of the Soviet military logistics traffic in real time. So we knew where all of their uh, where all of their units were, what kind of supplies they had, their ammunition stocks, fuel stocks, all that kind of thing. Uh, and that allowed our military to be able to uh, sort out what was the real threat and what was the fake, just how serious a threat we faced in various places around the world, particularly in Europe, uh, and gave us a great deal of confidence. Mm-hmm. Well, because of Weissband's uh, treachery in revealing it to the Soviets, uh, the Soviets changed all of their uh, logistics uh, ciphers and went to a far more sophisticated system uh, and we lost that access. It's mm-hmm. known in NSA history as Black Friday. Actually, it took about a month for them to change all the codes. But we went from reading virtually all of the logistics traffic to reading none of it. Mm-hmm. Now, this has some major consequences. One of them is um, uh, the Korean War. If we had still uh, maintained that kind of access to Soviet logistics traffic, we would have seen the Korean War coming. We would have seen a massive Soviet uh, buildup of supplies going to the North Korean army. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we uh, could have either possibly headed off the war by diplomatic means, or at least it would not have been the kind of utter total military surprise it was when the North Koreans attacked. Uh, so, uh, in one sense, uh, William Weissband has a lot of uh, blood on his hands uh, mm-hmm. because of his... Uh, uh, is really um, uh, setting the stage uh, for the uh, for the Korean uh, War. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I certainly had never heard of him. Um, yeah. So, Harvey, do you have some examples of things that? We- yeah, I, I, one example. Uh, you know, Weissband is somebody that that NSA was um, or the FBI was aware of um, before. Uh, Vasilyev's material was released. Um, the, the American public obviously was not. Um, uh, an example of somebody who um, w- was exposed by the Vasilyev material is a man named Russell McNutt. Um, in the Venona material, there was a, a, an unknown um, spy who was involved in atomic espionage. Um, who had uh, different cover names uh, at various times. One of them was Fogel, another was Purs. Um, a lot of speculation about who this person was, and, and uh, nobody knew. Um, the, certainly the FBI uh, never knew. They tried very hard to identify him, but, but could not. Uh, Vasiliev's notebooks identified him. Uh, he was a man named Russell McNutt. Uh, we were able to, to track him down. Uh, Russell McNutt was an engineer. Uh, he was a friend, a good friend of Julius Rosenberg. And in fact, uh, Julius Rosenberg had recruited him. Uh, Russell McNutt got a job um, in an engineering company that was building the facilities at Oak Ridge, Tennessee, uh, during World War II, where uh, uranium separation was taking place. Uh, and uh, Russell McNutt turned over uh, drawings of the various buildings to the KGB, which, of course, was useful because it, it helped them understand uh, what the United States was doing in atomic espionage, in a, building an atomic bomb. Um, the, the incredible thing about Russell McNutt, we, we traced his background and found out that his father had been a, a communist, uh, founder of the Communist Party in Kansas, and um, actually a good friend of Earl Browder, uh, who, who had been the leader of the American Communist Party. Um, and um, the, the incredible thing is we found out Russell McNutt was still alive when we were, when we were writing the book. And uh, he, had, he had become a vice president of Gulf Oil Company. 
Uh, he was the man that built Reston, Virginia. He was the uh, it was a company called Golf Reston that that built Reston, Virginia, and Russell McNutt was in charge of it. Um, you know, a lot of CIA people lived in Reston, Virginia, mm-hmm. and here the guy who built it was a, a long unknown Soviet spy. Um, he had retired and um, built developed a um, resort community in uh, the Blue Ridge Mountains. Um, in North Carolina uh, with a Lee Trevino designed golf course and he was still living up there Um, Mm. and in fact I I called him up and spoke to him Uh, he was in his 90s Um, he acknowledged uh, knowing remembering Julius Rosenberg and then I told him what was in Alexander Vasiliev's notebooks and at that point he said who did you say you are and um, the conversation took a more difficult turn. Mm-hmm. Um, he wanted to see some of the things that John and I had written, which I sent him. And the next time I called him, he professed to have no recollection of anything, which was entirely possible. He was 93 or 94 mm-hmm. years old, and he died about a year or so later. But um, that's an example of, of one of the things that we didn't know, uh, and we discovered that, that some... Um, you know, some people had gotten away with it, with, mm-hmm. with espionage. Mm-hmm. But much of what you guys did was you put to bed many of these controversies. Like, for example, Hiss. Does anybody doubt that Hiss was a spy now? There's still a few people. <laughs> uh, uh, there's a, there's a, web, uh, a website at New York University that's sort of devoted to his innocence. But I, I think it, it's a losing battle. Yeah, yeah. But Ro- the Rosenbergs, at least for Julius Rosenberg, nobody doubts that now. That's... Even his yeah, son, nobody, I heard his son, it, you know, yeah. Yeah, including his sons. And, yeah. and, you know, we've also, I think, established that some people were innocent. Um, uh, we we present, I think, a, a pretty convincing case that uh, Robert Oppenheimer uh, did not spy for the mm-hmm. Soviet Union mm-hmm. in spite of uh, charges uh, of some people uh, that he did. Um, now, th- there's fascinating material on Oppenheimer in these, in, in Vasiliev's notebooks, indicating that, uh, Oppenheimer lied that he he actually had been a member of the American Communist Party, and and probably his his lying about that is what sort of led him to a, a impossible position where he he eventually lost his security clearance. But mm-hmm. but uh, there's abundant evidence that that the KGB tried very very hard to recruit him, and they failed. Mm-hmm. I see. So let's talk in a little more general terms. What did you learn through these uh, uh, in these documents about the way in which the KGB did recruit people? Did they simply go after people who had been Communist Party members, or did they, how did they do it? John, you well, want to go ahead? Yeah. Um, uh, it, it depends on the era you're looking at. We go back to the 1930s, for example. Uh, the Soviet uh, agencies tended to avoid using people who were active in the Communist Party uh, because they thought it was a security risk. Now, they, they would use them occasionally for uh, to do some tasks, but they didn't like to recruit party members themselves as sources because they thought the Communist Party was, uh, was probably uh, infiltrated by the FBI. Uh, they were wrong. Actually, the FBI wasn't doing much about the Communist Party in that time. And they also thought if someone uh, had a a background of communist political activity, if it ever did become uh, the subject of a security investigation, that would come to light very quickly. So they tended to try to avoid uh, recruiting people who were active in the Communist Party. But, and this is, I think, a fascinating part of what the notebook show, uh, uh, Soviet espionage in the United States took a massive hit uh, and was really crippled in 1938 and 1939 not by anything American security agencies did, but because of Stalin's purges of his own security uh, agencies. Many of the senior uh, uh, KGB officers, actually I had different names back then, but but, uh, let's just use KGB to keep uh, things straight. Um, Many of the senior officers who had been working in the United States were recalled to the Soviet Union and shot. Um, And by you get to the point in the late of 1939, uh, the illegal operations in the United States were totally shut down. Uh, all of the officers had been recalled, and many of them shot. Uh, the the uh, intelligence operations that were 
running out of the diplomatic uh, agencies called the legal station, uh, had been reduced to only one experienced intelligence officer uh, and some junior people who didn't even speak um, uh, English very well. Uh, and that was all due to uh, Stalin's purges. All right, then, uh, so that carries on until uh, 1941. They, they really uh, are doing very little at that point. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then Germany attacks the Soviet Union. Uh, and, uh, of course, at that point, um, uh, Stalin... Uh, requires the uh, Soviet intelligence to ramp up all over the place, including he wants major operations in the United States. Uh, and so the uh, KGB has to send over new officers uh, and reestablish everything very quickly. Now, you know, if they'd done it the right way, uh, the, the old way, they would have sent over officers and got uh, acclimatized over time and slowly built up uh, networks. Again, they probably wouldn't have wanted using party members. But this was wartime. Things were urgent. They had to uh, do things very quickly. So they decided to take risk. And one of the things uh, they did was to put aside uh, the risk of using active communists. And uh, they went uh, to the Communist Party and asked for full cooperation with the communists. were delighted to provide, of course. Uh, and so uh, they used the, the party's political apparatus, that is, its network of of, uh, of secret party members uh, in government agencies, which were simply political, ordinarily a, a, a uh, you might call it subversion, but they weren't involved in intelligence, to turn over these politically-based uh, networks over to the KGB for espionage. And that was highly successful uh, in this period, and really kind of the golden age from 1942 to 1945, of using... Uh, secret uh, party members and various government agencies and turning them into spies. That all, however, that then came crashing down in 19, late 1945 with the defection of Elizabeth Bentley. Uh, and then, uh, uh, because she was the liaison between the Communist Party and uh, Soviet uh, intelligence operations, and she knew uh, most of the agents, and particularly she knew the Soviet officers who were involved with it, and they all had to be withdrawn from the United States. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I, I would just add to what John is, is saying, that there's a wonderful um, uh, thing in the, in the Vasiliev notebooks where um, the, the KGB asks one of their um, American, uh, he was not a, himself a spy, but he, he worked in these networks as a courier and, and agent handler and so on, um, they asked him um, to look into some issues, and, and he, he tells the KGB uh, officer in, in, in charge of the American operations that it's a disaster waiting to happen, that, that these networks with which Bentley is affiliated, um, everybody knows everybody else. I mean, and of course, in espionage, you want to compartmentalize. Mm-hmm. One spy doesn't know you know who else is spying well the, the, these these networks the, these were communist party networks so these people used to get together for communist party meetings mm-hmm. well they were all spies now and they knew what everybody else was doing and they at their meetings they would talk about who had what assignment mm-hmm. and who was supposed to get what information and, and this guy he says and his name was Joseph Katz he says um you know this is all it's going to take is one defection and the entire operation is going to come crashing down. Um, the, these people get together with their wives, and they talk about who's spying and who has what uh, kind of assignment. And, of course, that's exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. And can you talk a little bit about that? Well, Bentley, um, you know, Bentley was a strange woman. Um, she, she was a Vassar graduate. Um, she had gone to Italy in, in to study in, in the... Uh, early 1930s and uh, was sort of appalled by fascism. Um, she came back to the United States and, and sort of dabbled in Communist Party activities, and uh, then she was recruited um, and assigned to a man named Jacob Golis, who became her, her lover. And Golis 
was an American communist who also had Soviet connections. He'd lived for a number of years in the Soviet Union. And Golis was the man that was in charge of all these, these apparatuses uh, in Washington. And Bentley became his courier. Um, Golis died of a heart attack in uh, 1943, I think it was. And, and Bentley sort of took over running um, these these uh, networks. Uh, the KGB was was very quickly aware that Bentley was a loose cannon. Um, she she was an alcoholic. Uh, she was I, I guess this phrase isn't used these days, but she was a nymphomaniac. She just slept with everybody, and um, you know one of the Soviet officers was was scandalized when she propositioned him. Um, and um, she was very bitter. The Soviets be- began to, they realized she was uh, not entirely reliable. And, and they tried to ease her out uh, of uh, her role. And that just uh, fed her paranoia and anger. Um, and eventually, uh, she went to the FBI. Mm-hmm. And after the FBI got the information? Well, the- the first, they didn't believe her. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> um, but but they they gradually uh, did start to believe her, and um, they they uh, began to um, surveil the people that she had named. But unfortunately for the FBI, uh, Bentley's uh, statement, including all the people that she had named had been sent to Moscow, I can't remember, John, was it what, within a week after she made it? Yeah, within 10 days. Uh, that was, uh, the FBI had shared Bentley's uh, statement, which was extremely long in detail, which was uh, prepared after uh, she was being uh, interviewed by the FBI for over a month. Uh, they had shared it with British intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the, the FBI had a very close relationship uh, with uh, British intelligence. Unfortunately, among the people in British intelligence who uh, saw the report was Kim Philby, yeah. uh, who was, of course, a Soviet spy. And he promptly uh, got a copy of the report off to Moscow. And once uh, the KGB got a hold of it in Moscow, well, they sent emergency orders to, to the United States uh, to warn all the people that uh, Bentley had named to you know, burn anything you have and prepare your cover stories and get ready for an FBI interview. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I remember being in the Soviet Union and seeing a uh, Kim Philby stamp. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. We don't have those in the United States, do we? Do we have any famous spies on stamps? I don't think we do that. But, uh, yeah, you could buy a stamp and send a letter in the Soviet Union with Kim <laughs> Philby on it. Have you guys ever seen those? No. Yeah, no, they exist. They're, I'm not making that up. <laughs> yeah, well, we don't, we don't, we don't have a Kim Philby stamp, but we do have a, an Alger Hiss professor uh, professorship at Bard College. Do we really? Uh, yeah, we do. The, you know, one of the great ironies is that the, the guy that used to hold it was a very far left kind of crazed man. Uh, the guy that holds it now is uh, the person who was our editor at Yale Press who published Spies, Jonathan Brent, who, of course, is a, a, an anti-communist, yeah, right, but he, yeah. he holds the Alger Hiss professorship. Wow, that is, that is <laughs> ironic. So um, uh, uh, let's move on to kind of more general interpretation. Does, 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 does the material that you discovered and published in Spies, does it put McCarthyism in a different light? I think it does. Uh, you know, we're often asked the question of, yeah. of whether this vindicates McCarthy and McCarthyism. And uh, my answer always has been, uh, and I think John would agree with this, um, first of all, Joseph McCarthy did not initiate um, sort of the Red Scare or a, a spy, you know, search for spies or anything else. He's pretty much a latecomer. Uh, McCarthy was right on the large issue. There had been significant Soviet infiltration of um, American government, uh, American military secrets, and so on. Uh, He was wrong on most, not all, but most of the particulars. McCarthy did identify um, a handful of people who we now know genuinely were Soviet spies. Uh, Now, most of the people he identified were not, you know, they were not major spies. They were not at the level of somebody like William Weisband or Russell McNutt. 
but they they were working for the Soviet Union. Um, but McCarthy also accused a lot of people that were innocent, and um, his charges were really scattershot and uh, quite wild. And and I think ultimately McCarthy wound up hurting the cause of anti-communism and indeed the search for Soviet spies because uh, his charges were so wild. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But but he was right on the larger issue. John, you want to weigh in on that one? Yeah, I think it's important to remember that, um, uh, you know, in a sense, uh, the Nubatero that we have certainly vindicates, in a sense, the kind of post-war anti-communism and the concern about Soviet infiltration of government agencies. But as, as Harvey says, on the particulars of McCarthy's uh, targets, I think one of the things to keep in mind is McCarthy, uh, in terms of his uh, major charges, he was not really aiming at the Communist Party or even at Soviet spies. He was aiming at the Truman administration. And he was using anti-communism as a club uh, to pound away at the uh, Truman administration uh, and um, the legacy of the New Deal. Uh, for, in- for instance, uh, his most famous target was uh, George Marshall, who had been Secretary of State and uh, Secretary uh, of Defense. Uh, you know, he accused uh, Marshall of being of being part of a, uh, as he called it, a, uh, and a, a conspiracy so immense that it, it dwarfs any conspiracy in history. Well, that's utter, complete, total nonsense. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's nothing in any of this material that in any way implicates uh, George Marshall uh, or any of the other major figures in the Truman administration that were the targets of uh, of uh, McCarthy's attacks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, let's um let's turn the question around a little bit and ask uh, this. And I don't know if I've ever heard this question really asked and seriously answered. What did the Soviets get out of all this? How did they benefit? What did they learn that they didn't know that was of great value? I mean, that we can say just absolutely they got this from us and they right. well, benefited the, greatly from it. Well, the, the first, the first, and I think the most important thing is the atomic bomb. Um, you know, the, the, the lots of material had already come out about Soviet espionage, atomic espionage. Obviously, Klaus Fuchs, um, mm-hmm. the, the German-born British scientist who had been at Los Alamos. Um, Fuchs was identified through the Venona decryptions, uh, and he confessed. Um, uh, yeah, David Greenglass, Julius Rosenberg's brother-in-law, had been a machinist at Los Alamos, and, and um, Julius had recruited him to spy. And um, now, a lot of people had argued that David Greenglass was a, a really minor or inconsequential spy, if he was a spy at all, uh, because. Uh, the material he turned over couldn't have been very much value. Um, well, the, the Vasiliev notebooks make it clear that Soviets did greatly value Green Glass's material, uh, in part because it corroborated other information they were getting, which was important. Um, uh, Russell McNutt, um, the, several other spies that uh, have now been, atomic spies have now been exposed by um, Venona and, and the Vasiliev notebooks. And so we now know that without um, atomic espionage, uh, the Soviets would have it would have taken them estimates vary two to five years longer to build an atomic bomb, and certainly a, a great deal more expense. Um, they didn't have to go down some of the the uh, unproductive paths that that the United States had to do mm-hmm. uh, to develop an atomic bomb. And and the first Soviet bomb was a carbon copy of the American bomb. Mm-hmm. And they got that through espionage. So that was, I think that that, that was certainly the most uh, significant um, set of materials that, that espionage provided to the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, John? Yes, I would uh, I would agree with that, uh, and I think it makes a difference as to when the Soviets got the bomb. If it had been delayed two or three years, that would have meant the Soviets would not have had the bomb until after Stalin's death. Well, it makes a great deal of difference uh, whether uh, it was uh, the Soviets developed the bomb under Stalin or one of his far less frightening uh, successors. Uh, the other thing, uh, which I talked about earlier, is um, uh, the enormous damage done to American security 
uh, by William Weisspan and the information he provided about our uh, our electronic and cryptographic uh, intelligence. Now, you know, America is good at some kinds of intelligence and not at others. Uh, in terms of human intelligence, uh, I'm not sure that's one of our strengths. But when it comes to electronic intelligence, code breaking, interception, and that kind of thing, we are the best in the world. And uh, that has always served us well. Well, uh, it didn't serve us, uh, it couldn't serve us the way it could have uh, because of William Weinstein. Mm-hmm. And as I said, um, uh, his revealing to the Soviets that we were breaking into uh, uh, Soviet military logistics traffic allowed them to change their codes and stop our access to it, which set the stage for the Korean War. Mm-hmm. And that was a very, very uh, awful uh, thing to happen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I see. So uh, I'm glad you mentioned that because I was going to – I don't know this either, and I, I really am ashamed to profess my ignorance. Did the United States have a uh, network of spies in the Soviet Union? Do we know that? I mean – Not not very well, many. Yeah. And, I, uh, I think one of the things to remember is, is um, uh, during World War II, it was our policy not to spy on the Soviets. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did not develop any agents in Russia – uh, uh, in any area that was occupied by the Soviets. Uh, that was, uh, uh, we thought it would be um, bad for our alliance relationships if we uh, were were seen to be developing um, intelligence uh, uh, operations uh, with our ally. The Soviets, of course, had an entirely different point of view. To them, the wartime alliance was an opportunity to build up their intelligence operations mm-hmm. in the United States. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a, you know, the fascinating um, sort of sidelight of this is that, is that um, the, the, the Soviets, Moscow, uh, insisted that, that uh, uh, Kim Philby, Donald McLean, and Guy Burgess, who were their, their you know, prize spies, and Anthony Blunt, their prize spies in, in Great Britain, um, they wanted them to provide information about the British spies in the Soviet Union. And all of them reported that, that there were none, that <laughs> Churchill had issued a, an order that um, during, you know, as long as the Soviets and British were allies, that the British weren't going to spy on, on the Soviet Union. Well, Stalin's reaction to that was, this must mean that Philby and these guys are actually uh, double agents. <laughs> That they're working for the British because, of course, the British. Would. I mean, he, you know, he knew what he was doing, and so for. And we know that I mean, because there are memos that that have come out that for at least a year or so, um, the the Soviets were disregarding information that Philby and those guys were sending because they were convinced it was disinformation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so. <laughs> Uh, you know, it is a wilderness of mirrors. <laughs> yeah, that's it's pretty amazing, though. Actually, this, this. I mean, it makes it seem. It makes the United States and the. I didn't expect this from the British, but it makes the United States seem sort of naive. But uh, we were, after all, sending people over there. Uh, you know, <laughs> Lee Harvey Oswald being the most famous of them, I think. <laughs> but he didn't do anybody much good, I guess, in the end. Um, so it's a, it's an absolutely fascinating story. I'm really glad that we got a chance uh, to talk today, and uh, we're about out of time. So I want to take the last few moments of the interview to ask each of you in turn uh, what you are working on now. John, maybe we could start with you. Uh, well, actually, Harvey and I are working on a again a common project. We do a lot of uh, writing together, and we're just finishing up uh, working on a a new book for uh, Yale University Press. Um, in partnership uh, with a Russian historian, the Friedrich Fiersal, uh, a history of the communist international, the common term, mm-hmm. uh, based on a set of common term documents that uh, Fiersal, who used to be the chief historian at the, at the archive that holds the uh, common term records, uh-huh. uh, uh, based on a set of material that's uh, that he brought over with him when he moved to the United States uh, uh-huh. about a decade ago. Uh-huh. So it uh, it highlights a number of aspects of communist international history in the 1930s uh, and early 40s up to the time of this dissolution. Um, uh, that uh, again, uh, again, I don't think you'll find in this book any huge unknown revelations, but you will find a great deal of detail 
and uh, more complete documentation of yeah. things which either knew or suspected. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I should say also that work is terribly important because, you know, there are a lot of open historical questions and we don't know. I mean, the most famous of them, I, I think, are actually in the area in which you work. But, you know, historians commonly do uh, produce what I call closers, right? So this was an open question, and a uh, historian spends 10 years on it, and now it's not. Uh, and, and in a sense, that's what you uh, folks have done, is is use these documents to kind of end debate on this so we can move forward to t- kind of a- a- ask more interesting questions. You know, why, for example, were people so easily recruited? What role did the, co- you know, did the Communist Party have in politics in the United States? What, why aren't Americans interested in communism? You know, this kind of thing. So it kind of gets us past these um, these very contentious, I guess I would call them non-starters, you know, because you start to talk to somebody about these issues, and you mentioned Rosenberger or Hiss or one of these fellows, and pretty much it used to be the case in the 80s that conversation stopped. And uh, now I think we can move forward. So I'm going to congratulate you on writing uh, the book. Today we've been talking to uh, John Earl Haynes and Harvey Clare about their book, Spies, The Rise and Fall of the KGB in America. Um, they co-wrote it with Alexander Vasiliev. Again, I want to thank both you guys for being on the show. It's been a pleasure. Okay, thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.